one of the things that I wish I had done more is just like having a sit down, watching my stakeholders, watching leadership, understanding what made them tick and therefore how research would really resonate with them, right? What language are they using, right? Maybe it's not using the word research. In fact, our, our you know, CEO really doesn't like the word research. He likes, you know, speaking to customers, which at the end of the day, a lot of the time means the same thing. It just really is like a different language for it to really resonate with that person. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. So hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today we're very excited to have Jennifer Lee joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Jennifer is the UX Research Lead at WISE, and her story, which you'll hear more about today, is captured in our forthcoming book, User Tested, publishing on February 15, 2022. Prior to WISE, Jennifer held UX research roles at Microsoft, Nokia, and Qualcomm. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. Thanks for, so much for having me. Of course. So you're currently a UX research lead at WISE. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your role, your team, and, and what you're focused on? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, I, I'm working at WISE currently. Um, I've been there for over five years now. I actually joined as their first ever researcher. Uh, so I was the first ever qualitative researcher that WISE ever hired. Currently, I'm working on a product called Assets. We just released this recently into the UK and we'll soon be doing so in Europe and other parts of the world. It's a financial product that looks to change how you hold your money. So if you think about the way you hold your money in a bank account, it's usually just in cash. This allows you to hold it in different types of financial instruments just as easily as you would your cash and with almost the same amount of availability and accessibility for your money. Excellent. And so WISE is considered a, a fintech, right? And fintechs uh, are really known for disrupting the financial services industry and the banking industry largely on the user experience versus sort of a back office strategy or something like that, which I think is great. So uh, most people think it's the, and I think they're right, that it's the sleeker, easier to use, sort of better interfaces, better ultimately customer experience, just as you described, sort of better options, easier to access, um, faster, easier ways to deal with my money or the things I want to do with my money. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what role do you think uh, the user experience specifically plays in both attracting people away from traditional banking models to some of these new fintech models, but also uh, retaining people and, and keeping people in those. I know when I find these new kind of fintech options, I, I tend to stick with them. Um, what, how, what role do you think the user experience plays in that attracting and retaining of those folks? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And and I think you highlight exactly what fintech and especially WISE is all about. So like uh, WISE actually, or TransferWISE back in the day, started out because both of our founders were working in different countries and living in different countries. And so getting paid in different currencies that might not have been their local currency, right? Uh, so for example, one was living in the UK, but getting paid in euros. And they found that the traditional banking system just had such a terrible experience for them, right? They were trying to live their lives in their various countries, transfer money back and forth. And what they ended up doing, which is also something that I personally did, which was really funny, is speaking to each other. And because they both had bank accounts in the various countries that they needed to have money in, made trades with each other, right? It was basically like transferring between friends. And so the money never crossed borders. And by doing that, 
then they could have a much cheaper solution, a much uh, more convenient alternative, and one that still felt very safe, right, as far as an experience goes. So that was actually the impetus for WISE being created, which was like, we know that the banking system doesn't make this convenient, it's super expensive, it's very cumbersome, it's very slow, um, and it's hard to use, right? It's very inconvenient. That's what the basis of WISE was. It's what, that's what our first product was. It was the Send Money product. Um, and from there, it's just been about how do you make the experience of finance better um, because it was so broken. Well, maybe still continues to be a bit broken. Um, and as far as uh, your question around like retaining and getting new customers in, a lot of customers now especially are so much more aware, I think, of when things are inconvenient, right? You look at people trying to install new apps on their phone and they're just like, oh, this is so frustrating, right? This onboarding experience is awful. And that's enough to get people to churn now because they're so much more exposed to both good and bad experiences. And so, yeah, the experience becomes, I would have to say, super important for products to succeed. Like on the one hand, there's how much do you need to use it? Sure, there's going to be a necessity element that, you know, if there, especially if there aren't other competitors on the market, you're going to have some kind of lead with. But as soon as there are others out there, right, that do a similar function, uh, if they do it well, that's when retention and everything else starts to drop unless your experience matches up. Um, there's an amount, of course, that is around brand loyalty and other things like that, which is also very important. But I would have to say the user experience becomes paramount to keeping customers happy and with your product over the long term. Yeah, and I like how you, uh, and we, we talk about this sometimes, how the experience is now often compared not just to other sort of sector industry related experiences, but sort of everything else on your phone or your iPad or whatever you're using. It's like, why is it hard to do this service when these other services are so easy? I also really like in your example, I love stories where there's a solution that involves technology, but then it doesn't actually solve the problem. So people behave differently to solve the problem. So I like that your initial story is people had figured out some way around the weird problems and costs associated with doing this. And what your product did was really sort of embrace helping fix that and sort of like get people to to have technology maps the way that they were, were solving the problem already, which is uh, which is great. Um, my background is, is as a product manager. So I love questions about how uh, UX research teams and designers and folks that care about customer experience so much and get this feedback from users work with product organizations, uh, sort of broadly, both product managers, but also engineering teams and others. Um, can you talk a little bit about coming on board as that first UX research uh, person in, in the organization? And, and then like, how did you connect with the product teams and actually work with product managers and, and the product organization broadly? Yeah, good question. I'll have to uh, go back to my memory logs <laughs> when I first joined WISE. Um, the first product actually that I worked on is probably our biggest one now, which is the multi-currency account, uh, then called Borderless previously. That was the exact first project that I worked on, actually, which was huge, uh, which was amazing. They had been working on they had been working on it for a couple of years by then, uh, getting that back end working, the complex banking and development systems that need to be put in place before you even look at the UI. And one of the things that happened was because there wasn't a lot of you know research perhaps there was no research resource before I brought got brought on and design was a much smaller team then there hadn't been a lot of experience design put into it at that point right um, it was it was an idea it was can, how do we technically make it work because we know where we want to go with it so being brought in the first things that I did was like just discussing with the team right like where does this come from what are the problems we're trying to solve getting a lot of that background context and then after that it became how do we how do we validate this right how do we show it to customers how do we get it to a point where it's easier to use because technically we know it works. It was a big challenge. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that team had not been super exposed to 
folk like me researchers or that many designers by that point. So a lot of it was bringing the team along, right? It was like, okay, we're going to run some user tests. We're going to put this in front of people. What do they say? Let's listen to their commentary. How do we, how do we bake this in then into how we want to iterate the product, get that design to a better place. And they could see then where the customers were struggling to understand what we were trying to express to them. Um, it was also like a fairly new idea. I mean, we had things like Western Union and other competitors at the time, but it was not, you know, to this level in an app on a website, you know, trying to do it seamlessly from home, no cash involved type of thing. So getting it in front of customers for the first time, they had a lot of really interesting mental models and expectations around it. Like traditional banking apps were relatively prevalent here in the UK, but you moved anywhere like into the US and stuff like that. It's not as prominent, right? Or at least it wasn't as prominent then. So you'd see different types of struggles from different geos, different, you know, types of customer segments and things like that. And uh, yeah, just bringing the team along, showing them where the customers were struggling was enough to get those discussions going and to get people to believe that like the experience and the design around the experience really mattered. And beyond that, it was kind of like a freight train to be perfectly honest. It was just like, oh my gosh, we see now where people are struggling. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's, um, let's change the CUI, which we hadn't really thought about uh, very specifically from a customer point of view. And let's change it. We got more designers onto the team, right? Like Again, it just like kind of exploded from that point on, which was awesome. And it was great to see. Yeah, sort of a seeing is believing kind of moment, right? As people go, oh my gosh, we, we need to go fix that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely that. And and it was great because like people at Wise, especially like especially that product team that I was working with were very open to this thing, right? They didn't know what research was. So a lot of what I then did also was like a call to banner of just like, hey, let's run some research 101 sessions. Let's get this training out there. Like, let me make you more aware of what research can do and what kinds of questions it answers and how this is valuable to you as a product team. Um, so I started running monthly, actually bi-weekly and then monthly sessions for anybody in the company who wanted to hear what research was about and how to make their product better, right? Um, we're a very typically engineering and data heavy company, which is great and makes sense because we're in finance. <laughs> but um, beyond that, we all know that experience makes that much of a difference, just as we were talking about earlier. From then on, it was just uh, easy to get people to listen, even just like, uh, what's research? What is that business? And then they come in and be like, oh, I could see how this applies to my work. I can make it better. And then, yeah, it just took off like wildfire. It's great to hear how, you know, you started as a single researcher and you sort of brought the team along. I love how you sort of almost showing up in their world, if you will, and, and showing where you're relevant and where you can help them be better and make more customer-centric decisions. Um, and it sounds like your team has grown and you've also moved to this model of not just taking all the research on, on your own or, or having just your team do it, but you've also been thinking about and, and actually doing the empowerment of other people at WISE. This is something that we actually talk a little bit about in the book. And so I was wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what, what you did and, 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 and how you went about empowering people beyond your team to, to talk to customers and, and gather customer feedback. As I mentioned, one of the things that I started doing was running those research 101 courses, right? A lot of it was just getting people to an awareness level where they even knew that research existed. Since it hadn't existed beforehand, uh, it was a very just like, you know, let me define some different things for you. What are different methodologies that we use? What are different question types that we can answer with the with research versus versus quantitative data, which is also very useful, obviously, and very informative. And 
they were much more familiar with that. So a lot of it was making analogies to things that they had done and just being like, this is how this layers on top of the things that you already know to make it even better. So I did those types of classes. I also did training. So one of the things I needed to do and do quickly, especially when it started to catch was scale, right? Scale, whatever research um, that we were going to be doing as a company, Uh, me being a singular researcher meant obviously I was not going to be involved with every, um, product or every project that needed research. It's unfortunate, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day and uh, being one person that wasn't going to be likely. So that's when I brought on uh, tools like usertesting.com and other ones where it was very clear that uh, I'd be able to get a lot of people onboarded onto this. It wasn't going to be super difficult to use and they'd be able to get to a very specific level of research on their own. A lot of it beyond that is like training how to use the tool, but also question writing, right? There's a lot of qualitative aspects to writing tests in the right way, making sure you're not biasing it, stuff like that. So the research 101 trainings kind of evolved to be, okay, now that you know what research is, here's how you can make better quality research on your own, even if you don't have a researcher, right? Democratizing different types of methodologies um, that can be adopted by everyone. Obviously, this has its limitations, right? Um, As researchers, uh, there are many types of research where you definitely want a dedicated and uh, much more highly trained researcher on the team. Anything to do with generative research or discovery research, right, goes much harder into... So uh, it's much harder to train somebody to do that, especially very quickly. But getting to the point of like usability testings or different types of validations, we could do that very easily through these scalable tools, which was fantastic. And that enabled a lot of teams to just get over that initial hump, I think that initial bar of even just testing what they'd made. And that already makes the product so much higher quality, right? It doesn't take much to be able to speak to a customer and be able to see the problems that they're having and then therefore make your product better based on that feedback. It's super uh, interesting to hear how you've approached it and how you've, you know, pulled others into um, this this process of getting feedback on designs, on ideas, on concepts, um, and really giving them kind of the keys to the car, if you will. In addition to empowering people to talk to customers on their own and to get feedback on what they're working on. What are some other ways that you've been working at WISE to build sort of this shared understanding of your customers? So maybe it's other things that you might be doing that help bring to light um, who your customers are uh, beyond, you know, having um, different roles actually talk to customers. Like would love to hear just a little bit more about how you're perhaps consistently sort of evangelizing the customer throughout WISE. Yeah, there are a couple of different ways. One of the ones that I've been doing recently, actually, with my team is doing watch parties. So I'll, I'll be running research on something that we're very interested in finding out more about. And because of the way that uh, COVID obviously has affected the way that we do research, we used to do a lot more in-person research as well as having remote research. Like it was a double a double whammy and you get the different types of experiences and different levels of insights based on the different methods you use. Obviously with COVID that, that all kind of uh, got put to a stop. People aren't going to the office. We don't want to put any participants at risk um, seeing them in person. So it's been almost all done uh, remotely. But what that means also is the way, especially with um, Zoom meetings and other maybe tools that you might use is that people are very aware of who is on the call, right? Um, it becomes less of a, you can watch the participants behind a double, you know, a double-sided mirror, or even um, the way that we set it up, the way that I set up at the office was we would be dialed into a Zoom call and that camera would be running, but they would have, we would have watchers in a different room, right? So they were completely not visible to the participant. The participant could have a much better rapport and a better conversation, more private conversation with me uh, or the, whatever researcher is doing the research. But now, unless you have a little bit slightly more complicated tooling, the participants are very visible, right? And that usually sets a couple of 
that that sets participants on edge a little bit, right? It's no longer I'm having this private, nice conversation and I can feel like I have that rapport and maybe get into things that are a little bit more sensitive, especially things like finance. So what I've been doing now is recording the sessions and then having these watch parties with my team, right? So we can have time to watch it over, discuss it then while it's happening, uh, do those types of things. And then um, other members of the team will be able to see and discuss the same things that they've watched together. It becomes really deep discussions. Like it's really nice. It's not just one person's uh, point of view or anything like that. Suddenly you can have the shared experience and that works the same uh, with user testing videos, right? Uh, same thing if we send out a remote test like that, we'll have watch parties then to watch the videos together, to, ha- to do group note taking and group think right at that time in real time. And then from there, the team, we can, you know, make our Jira tickets, we can put stuff on the backlog, we can immediately start actioning things. So that's one of the ways that I've been doing it recently that I found really re- enriching. A couple of the other things that I, that have come to mind recently to me is a lot of researchers say that they want to be or they are the voice of the customer right, for their team, for, you know, they're like the representative of the customer. And I think that's super important. And it's good to have that. And you need to have those, those quotes, those other things. But I also think it's about the needs of the user, right, the needs of the customer, the uh, lifestyle, the context of the of the customer and the participant that makes that difference. So it's not even just evangelizing the voice and the quotes, it's also the behaviors, the lifestyle, right, the context in which you're going to be building these different products. So that's another thing that we've been bringing in a lot more, uh, which I found super enriching as well. Yeah, I love that. It's sort of like kind of building out the perspective to be more than just the voice, right? And like you said, to the other elements that actually make up your customer. Your example too of the watch parties is great. Um, I find it fascinating when I do those types of activities, how everybody sees things a little bit differently. And you're right that like having that conversation and aligning around what people saw and how people interpreted it, just it helps bring so much depth to the conversation. It helps people just think more uh, and really think about and put themselves in the shoes of the customer. So love that example. I was going to say it especially is nice because you can see team members building off of each other. Right. Yeah. So it becomes, like you said, everybody's slightly different um, nuanced observation of the thing, but also it's just like, hey, this thing. Oh, wait, I just remembered this thing, whatever. And that discussion really snowballs just from, you know, having watched five minutes of, of a customer doing a thing or talking to a researcher. That's that's all it takes to get that ball rolling in a much more productive direction. Kind of going back to early days, you know, sing, you're the single researcher that came on board. You've now sort of built a team and and you've you've built this practice across wise and people have adopted um but it i know joining as a single researcher probably wasn't always this way where people were so sort of uh into this right i think uh in previous conversations and in some of the other work we've done with you, you mentioned that you were a very kind of data driven company in the early days so curious um how did you go about sort of building the case for this idea of uh, customer listening, um, more qualitative insights? Um, do you fo- did you focus on things like, you know, uh, uh, influencing business KPIs? Did you focus on things like storytelling? Like, what are some of your tactics for actually building this practice and building momentum at WISE? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I'm not going to lie. It was a difficult... <laughs> It was difficult. It was. It was definitely took a lot of thinking uh, and strategy on how you wanted on how you want to do it or how I approached it. One of the thing, one of the biggest things I learned, and I wish I had done a lot more. So I'm going to spread this to other people who are in who are in that uh, particular situation. Is 
a lot of it is about influencing and convincing your stakeholders around the value, right? I mean, this is what it really comes down to, to get a business case, to expand your research team, or to get you know additional funding for tools or whatever it is that you need to scale up your, your discipline. And a lot of that is like listening and observing to what types of questions they want to have answered, right? But everyone has questions that research can answer when it comes to product and the furthering of product and strategy around product, but they don't always know how to uh, communicate these in a clear way or in a in a way where the research question is already written itself. So a lot of it is having those discussions and watching your stakeholder to see what resonates with them, right? What questions are they already curious about? They're, 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 they're up there for a reason, they're leadership for a reason, they've got thoughts and, and plans and strategies, right? In order to know which strategies or plans that you would want to influence with research, right? Bring more insights in for three research. You have to know what those are first. One of the things that I wish I'd done more is just like having a sit down, watching my stakeholders watching leadership, understanding what made them tick and therefore how research would really resonate with them, right? What language are they using, right? Maybe it's not using the word research. In fact, our, our you know, CEO really doesn't like the word research. He likes, you know, speaking to customers, which at the end of the day, a lot of the time means the same thing. It just really is like a different language for it to really resonate with that person. So yeah, getting down to the same language, getting down to the questions that they're really interested in, assuming that they are things that you can answer with research and that are good research questions at the base of them, if you if you dig and rewrite them a little bit, right? A lot of that is is really important to getting getting that influence, getting that resonance with your audience, whether that be leadership or beyond. I was just really curious about how you sort of built the case for, for okay. UX research within yeah. WISE and, and how you built that momentum over time. Well, first off, it started out obviously being hired in the first place meant that somebody already in the company believed in research or some degree of research. They knew what they were missing enough to be like, okay, we need to have we need to have a researcher in here. Bringing me in then and being able to do is like, okay, let's make enough case studies through the work that you're doing in order to show the value of this happening. Yes, it did definitely depend a lot on like showing how KPIs got moved, right? Um, different business metrics were moved based on research. So, for example, the the MCA product that I spoke of earlier, the borderless, the multi-currency account, a lot of it was just like, okay, uh, we're going to release this in a beta. How do we show the impact of research going into a beta, right? Okay, let's get a benchmark. Let's uh, do some testing. Let's iterate that design. Let's show how this pushes pushes the numbers, right? Conversion numbers, um, amounts of money held in the accounts, these types of metrics, which are key, right? Like every uh, team in WISE has business KPIs and also team quarterly OKRs that they set. So Knowing what your um, team is looking for, what your team's looking to push is really good as a guide as well to get research into those places to push those things. I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to think more back because it's such a long time ago. How did I get to the case where it was like that? Oh, obviously, as, as I started to ask for more budget for things like scaling tools and stuff like that, it became very apparent that one person wasn't going to be able to do it. So it became a very natural discussion of just like, okay, I can, I've scaled as hard as I can within the tooling and the budget that I've been given. At a certain point in time, one person doing this is not going to be, a, <laughs> it's not going to be enough. Um, so just being able to say, okay, Let's hire our next researcher. This is the opportunity space where they will have the most impact, right? So identifying the areas that they would already start to make impact and 
being able to split it. So the way that we split it, for example, was between the consumer and the business product. We knew that there were these two large pieces of our product that were very different, very different segmentations of customers. And we wanted to ensure that they were given their equal time in the sun, right? They're both very important products. So I was like, okay, I will focus on consumer. Any second researcher that we hire in, let's get them into business and make sure that that starts to get the focus that it really needs to push. And that was actually a fairly easy argument argument to make because we knew that business had the potential to be huge for our business KPIs and metrics, right? We knew the opportunity space. We had done some opportunity sizing. And it was just like, by not looking at this part of our product, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, right? We're never going to get to the point of our mission, which is to have fast, easy, and hopefully almost free, you know, transfers and money movement around the world. It's like, without this we're not going to make it. So then it became about that. And then, yeah, and then it's easier and easier to see as one person starts to look in one area, like I was in consumers, like, okay, these teams are the ones that are missing things. This is where research could make a huge difference. This is how we'd push that KPI if you had somebody there. Um, And then in business, that's what that researcher did, right? And then it became kind of a a cascading effect of just like, okay, get in, get in, get in. Um, We also changed the structure of the way that the research team was done. So obviously as one researcher, you end up being almost like an internal consultancy, making that work because there's no other way that you can't sit within a team for a long period of time because all the other teams get ignored. (laughs) So you do an internal consultancy model. After you get a couple of researchers in, then other models like embedding into product teams, specific product teams and stuff like that becomes much more viable. Then you can also get insights distributed at a much higher level, right? And across the company. What I'm hearing as sort of the 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 throughput or the thread line is that what you've done is you have partnered with your business stakeholders to really understand what it is that they care about, what metrics they're responsible for, and sort of showing how you can help influence them. And actually, in fact, influencing them and doing things to help move them in the right direction. I was speaking with uh, another person in the industry, and she made a comment and it sort of stuck with, and it has stuck with me. And this was probably six months ago at this point. But what she said was that people, you know, who are focused on understanding customers and are in the field of UX, they spend so much time looking at, observing, understanding, talking to their end users and their end customers, yet not as much time basically doing the same thing with your internal stakeholders, which are also your customers. And so I think, you know, your point is, is very well taken and, and so valid that like you, you really have to sit and understand what it is that your stakeholders need, want, what language they use, all the things that we use to understand our end users can, those tactics and approaches really should be used to understand your internal people and your stakeholders so you can meet their needs. Absolutely. I think that's hitting, yeah, hitting the nail on the head. Absolutely. Because one of the things actually that came up really nicely and naturally, very organically with the Research 101 courses I was talking about and showing other teams, in not even traditional product teams. So one of the biggest components actually of, of the Research 101 courses was speaking to our office team, our HR team, which was basically like, hey, anybody is going to be your end user. Every single team here, regardless of whether or not it's product team, has an end user, right? So for the HR team, your end user is us, the people who work at the company, right? And at the time we were doing an office uh, rebuild, we were doing a renovation of our office space and they had noticed 
through observation, which I was very proud of, um, you know, people using their spaces in different ways. Um, they're just like, oh, people tend to congregate here. People don't use this space. And I want to know why. And then they're just like, oh, why don't, why don't we send out a survey? And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Just like, hold on a sec. Just like observe some people, ask them a few questions, right? Just look at them as they're doing this. And from there, they were able to do a study to figure out which spaces were most productive and why. And just by thinking about it, you know, us, our, their colleagues as their end user, finally, that changed totally how that team looked at and dealt with their projects going forward for things like office renovation and even things like benefit packages. You know, how does this resonate with our customer who is you, the colleague who works with us, right? Stuff like that. It was very cool. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad uh, that that's out there because I totally agree. And it's often something that's very overlooked, I think, using research for internal purposes. Yeah. And I think what I really liked about your answer on this, just to add to what Janelle said in, and your answer is it's, it's not just about the charter of research. I think it sort of feels like, yeah, like, yes, you should be connected to the people you're trying to get help to build products, but it was really a great way to answer. How do you get buy-in? I sort of liked it as a starting point. I think sometimes we'll talk to folks in, in our industry who really want to focus on very core, like generative new things. And the thought is like, I'm going to show up and surprise everybody at a meeting with something they hadn't even been thinking about. And that's when they're going to go, yes, this is really important. And we should be doing more of this. And those are great. Like those are always, those are really fun stories. I love when folks say like, we did something with user testing and then, you know, everyone was surprised and hadn't thought about this. But the reality is the teams that we're working with, they have major problems. They're already trying to go resolve. They know that they're trying to work on these things. And, and just your process of saying going and, and I think Janelle's like very meta summary of it was great of like, it's almost like you're doing UX research or user research on your internal user customers, but to really line up those initial bits of feedback to get that buy-in to sort of get the snowball going, I think is really, really quite smart. And I think a lot of folks that uh, that listen to the podcast or are customers of ours, I think that's a really good way to think about uh, not being the only thing that you go do. I mean, like, you know, core generative stuff is pretty neat too, but the idea of like, Hey, there's real issues folks are already working on. If you can go in and understand what those are um, and really focus on the things you're doing early there, I think that's a great way to get that buy-in. We've, we've covered a ton here, you know, based on, you know, your evolution at uh, why is the impact that you've had, how you bring customer centricity to life. Um, So this has been, Super great. I, I was hoping we could move to um, the lightning round. And this is really meant to just be sort of like whatever comes to mind. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll kind words. of, what's that? I said famous last words. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So um, can you share a book that you've recently read um, that you'd recommend to our listeners? Gosh, okay. So I'm going to be super embarrassing and fully admit that I, most of the large portion of my reading is fiction. <laughs> I know it's probably super unresearch or like I do read nonfiction as well, of course. I would say, okay, I'll give you two different two different ones that I can think of. The book that always comes to mind when I think of research um, or that I use on a regular basis is DIY. It's by um, an agency called Standby uh, here in London. It has a, it's a fantastic book. Basically, it's a book of different types of templates for you to have different thoughts. It's like a 
way to map out what you're thinking about. So it's like, oh, you want to answer this type of question. Here's a strategy, um, you know, to do that. Basically, they're like workshop facilitation techniques and templates and worksheets for you to think through the way that you want to approach something. So I know it's not strictly research, but it's one of my favorite books. I always have it on my shelf. I always have it flipped open to something if I'm going to run a workshop. And I find that really helpful. There's a more a much more real it's, I think it's called the DIY Toolkit. It's downloadable for free by PDF on their website. STBY is the name of the agency standby. And uh, yeah, it's just a great book. So that's the first one I think of whenever I do ask me about research-related stuff. Um, on a non-research-related one, I'm reading Dune right now, which I'm really enjoying and <laughs> nerding out wholly around that entire uh, Game of Thrones-esque sci-fi world. <laughs> Awesome. Two, two great uh, recommendations. Give me a piece of advice that you'd give to someone trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback. Ooh, trying to get somebody to invest in customer feedback. Sorry, I'm just going to take a second to think about this. So one piece of advice I would say is just what we mentioned before. Figure out what who you're trying to answer this for, right? Who are you doing your research for? Observe, listen, and figure out what makes them tick. Um, for me, a lot of that is just like what resonates with them, right? This is how you get traction for any of the research that you're doing. Know your audience and therefore what you're going to really be delivering to them because otherwise... Research for the sake of research, as we all know, is fantastic, but also not that useful sometimes. Absolutely. Can you also share perhaps a recent great experience that you've had? Um, could be anything uh, in, in your uh, recent day-to-day life. Um, so maybe share that and, and what made it so great. Sure. Yeah. The the first one that I could think of is it only happened yesterday or something like that is I was adding a new payment card, a new uh, credit card to my Apple Watch. It's not something I do very often. There was only one card on there before. Um, I use that card very often, right? Or I use my Apple Watch to pay very often. But it had been a long time since I'd set up that initial card. So I was like, okay, we'll see how this goes. You know, you know, get some given some side eye to that situation, not expecting it to be really smooth. Um, but then uh, I did it and it was super smooth. It was like the smoothest thing I've seen in a long time. You know, uh, it amazes me because I used to work for Nokia where things, you know, were a lot more wired, right? Like it was like back in the day, things took some effort. Now it's just like, I want to add this card. Cool. Camera turns on, scans the numbers in, don't even need to input put anything myself that gets put in. I put in security code, fair enough. Um, and then it just gets uploaded into there. That's it. It's ready to use, right? It was like the nicest thing I've done in a long time. And it really stood out. I actually commented to my husband. I was just like, oh my gosh, look at this thing. This is what it looks like when things go right. You notice the delight and you feel great about it. Um, and I felt shocked by that. I shouldn't have been shocked. I mean, it's an Apple product that's been out for a long time, but I felt pleasantly surprised. I think it's because I had gone against some other less awesome UIs in you know, recent times doing various things. And I was just like, wow, this one stood out to me, even though it shouldn't have been shocking. It was. <laughs> you know, it's good when a UXer says it's good, right? <laughs> Yeah, please don't quote me on that though, because now I feel like you know everyone's going to be like, "Oh no, Jen's wrong. That Apple, <laughs> Apple Wallet ad is terrible." But at least getting into the Apple Wallet while it was really easy, adding it to the watch was a similar process, which some might say was redundant, but I didn't find it too like cumbersome. All things considered, thing took me less than fifteen seconds to do. Right? If I can get my payment cart up and running, I don't even need to carry it anymore because I have it on my Apple Watch. It's done. Right? Like that experience, jazzy. <laughs> I love it. I have to ask, given it's sort of a tangential space, financial services, you know, uh, capturing credit card information, financial information. Is there anything from that experience that you were like, oh, we could totally apply some of these patterns or or other things to the wise experience? 
God, that is a great question. That is a fantastic question. Uh, yeah, I mean, like one of the things that we would love, obviously, is a much more Internet of Things smoothness, especially since we use our app and our app is the major one of the major parts of it. Obviously, we have a website and an app, but um, obviously the the majority of most of our markets are tending towards using much more of their phones, a lot less the, the website necessarily. Um, and I've seen that across many different industries. And um, one of the things that we want to do and one of the things that's been difficult to do, I think, in financial services is sharing payment information in a way that's very convenient and very seamless. So one of the things that I see constantly, and I imagine this happens um, for most people, is let's just say you're out with friends, right? You're, you're paying dinner together and you want to pay each other back. We, there are excellent services out there that do that easily, right? Like Monzo or um, Venmo in the US, other ones like this, right? There are reasons why these services have come along because it's very hard or you don't want to have cash or you don't want to write a check to your friend, which is silly, right? Or all kinds of that kind of stuff. One of the things that we've uh, been slowly trying to implement is nearness payback, right? So you're using your NFC, your Bluetooth, your something else. So you can have similarly to this Apple Watch situation. Yeah, your, your devices are near one another. That's enough, right? I don't need to know your, your specific name or type in a security code for me to just be like, here, here's that $15 that I owe you for that thing. Um, it would be lovely if I didn't have to set up a specific transfer in my app to tell you to give you money when you're standing right next to me, right? In normal life, I would have just given you you know, cash, I guess that could have been easy if, if people carried cash still. Right. And yeah, that was the thing that occurred to me because we were working on that already, knowing that that's a thing that we want to do, but it's very difficult with the way the internet of things works. And so when this Apple watch one happened, I was like, Oh my gosh, sometimes it does happen. And it's amazing. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something that I know we're all thinking of our wise that has been, it's just difficult the way that the, the coding and the structure works. It's just very technically difficult, but you know, the quality of that experience when it does work. Right. Which is why we all want it. We all strive for it. It's very difficult to do. <laughs> I love that use case, especially I mean, just I was at hockey on Sunday morning and we were dividing up the ice time cost and you know, it's the same, everybody's getting the same bill, right? It's, it's, you know, it's like 15 bucks a person. It's like, why can't the organizer just say, yeah, everybody in this room owes me 15 bucks and you can just on your phone say, great, here you go. Right. Like, I, I think that's a phenomenal use case. I like it. Uh, if only. Right. I mean, we're all slowly moving in towards that direction, or at least hopefully we are, at least certainly at wise we are, we are trying to. And yeah, it's just a difficult one. I mean, fair enough. Right. No, no one said that the creating of the amazing smooth experience would be easy, <laughs> um, but we all hope for that because that would be amazing and it would make lives so much, so much faster, so much simpler, so much smoother. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably a good segue here. So when you think about the future of user experience, what are you most excited about? I'm actually most excited about the smoothness, just like we were talking about. I look forward to not feeling the struggle or seeing people struggle, especially, and this is going to, this is going to come up a lot more. What already has come up as, um, you know, as the generations are all getting a bit older and things like this, things that are difficult technically become even more difficult, right? You know, we're not even talking about things yet. Or, well, I mean, we are, but like, you know, things like disabilities or, um, other types of limitations, right, that you might have. As you get older, your body doesn't work the same. You can't, you know, manipulate UIs in the same way, things like this, right? Or the other way around that. If you're very young, that's also very difficult and very different, right? I look forward to UX bringing a new perspective for these different segments that traditionally struggle with traditional products. You've seen it time and time again. I'm pretty sure we all have the parent that, you know, struggles with, uh, you know, doing that doing that thing with their DVR, right? Or something else, right? So that might be ancient now. People don't even do that now because they have streaming services, but you know, okay, fine. Uh, going through the streaming service and finding the show that they want, right? Like these are not 
things that should be hard, especially when it comes to necessary services in our life or things that are supposed to bring us joy. It's really, really kind of horrible sometimes when you watch these beautiful entertainment systems or something else, and it's so hard to use. You have to dig so hard to get that great experience that you're already looking for and you've bought into and that's why you got the product. Yeah, I look forward to seeing my mom, you know, sit in her living room at some point in time and just be like, well, I got the thing that I wanted. I didn't need to know the 10 step process to get to the stuff that I want. Probably is the thing I look forward to most. Seeing that ease with the different segments that traditionally struggle. I uh, I love that point. And I think you're right about as generations shift through. I had a terrifying moment about uh, two weeks ago over the holidays where I was trying to navigate a video game menu and my 10 year old took the controller out of my hands and just did it for me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm that parent now. Like it was it was like this crisis moment. I don't think I had a midlife crisis, but I think I had a UX life crisis when that happened of like, I'm too old to understand how this thing works. It was really uh quite the moment. So uh, I hope your world comes to fruition before I get much older and my kids have to keep showing stuff. Oh my gosh, I know. It's horrifying, isn't it? I've had, <laughs> yes. had similar situations. I was just like, oh my gosh, have I re- have I reached peak US, you know, usability <laughs> for things that exist now? Oh my gosh. It makes you feel so ashamed as a customer. You're just like, oh my gosh, like everyone else gets this. So, you know, what? where have I missed it? No, it's not that. It's never, it's not the user's fault, right? It's just like, no, this could be made easier. This could be made so much better. Yeah, and hopefully be causing a lot less UX live crises. That's that's what my hope would be in the future. But it sounds like I'm over the hill on peak user, which is not, uh, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that now. Peak user, peak user for all this stuff. Which is like, oh gosh, guys, we've not reached peak user yet. This isn't, this isn't the right, this isn't right yet. We need to iterate. <laughs> I love it. I have stories like that where I can relate to, I'm can constantly picking up tips uh, from my kids by just sort of observing what they're doing, you know, using different devices. I mean, I will be ashamed to admit that, you know, when you get a little text alert on your phone, and you can swipe up to make it go away. I learned that from my kids. Like I, I saw them get that. And I saw my oldest daughter swipe up to make it go away. And I was like, oh, and it's been life changing. <laughs> so Janelle, do your kids, are they subjected to like open-ended research or kind of questions when that's happening? Where is it like, are they all of a sudden like, mom, am I in a moderated study right now as we go through my usability? On my phone? Yeah. No, I tried to not do that. Although uh, I, it was a funny moment over Christmas. We um, we gave my dad a, a wireless printer so uh, to, to print photos because he's very concerned about losing the photos that are on his phone. So this was sort of a thoughtful way to help him ease that fear. And so watching him try to figure it out, to your point, Jennifer, it was like, he had no idea. Like you had to download an app and connect the thing to the wireless and then connect your phone to the, the printer through the, you know, and it's just like, and so then I see my youngest daughter, sorry, not my youngest. I saw my daughter, my oldest daughter come over and she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And she took the reins and she downloaded the app. And now my dad's sending her the pictures that he wants to have printed. So it goes <laughs> through like, <laughs> like some sort of a workflow process, but I'm sitting here watching this whole thing go down and I'm like, all right. Like I, I've now actually reached the point where like, I don't have to be the IT person anymore for my parents <laughs> because I've got a daughter now that can do it. And she probably did it better than I ever could have thought to do it. So yeah. I, but, but it was like my own little experiment, right? I'm sitting on the couch, like watching this all go down on Christmas day. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, on the one hand, it's super empowering, right? Like you see it, you see the younger generation be so much more adept than any other generation before it. Cause like, um, this is going to age me pretty badly, but like when I grew up, you know, people didn't have phones. Uh, we didn't have phones until very late in life, uh, like probably college or uni or, you know, that era was when people started to get phones, mobile phones on their own that actually did things. Right. Um, so, you know, first camera phone, Ooh, maybe second or third year of college, right. That kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I remember the the difference, the evolution that happened when things like UX started to really make a difference. Right before it was just like, I don't know, you're going to have to figure it out. You want to use that thing? You just need to put in the effort. And there's some beauty in that as well. Like I totally love that people struggled through it and then felt real ownership around, you know, mastering something and getting to it. But our, our industry is changing, right? This is what UX is all about. It's like they don't need to have that struggle, that frustration, that really awful mental load that we give them if, if we don't need to. And as things started to get easy, you know, the, I don't know, I'm going to sound like an Apple fan girl. I'm not. But like, you know, the, the iPhone came out, changed things dramatically on how we think about design and UX and stuff like that. And there's other better examples that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. But basically, you can see that evolution. The kids nowadays, right, are much more adept. They're already, they're tech natives or whatever we call that segmentation now, where it's like, no, they already understand what that is. You can touch stuff. It has a screen. It's going to have, you know, a bunch of boxes that you can press on it. It makes sense. Um, and seeing that gap, basically, through the generations has been really interesting, especially with the evolution of UX, right? You, you have people who, like if you, I guess like the way that I look at it, because I don't want it to sound like, oh, okay, only the newest generations will ever get the newest UX ever. I don't think that's true. It's just that different generations had different types of UX experience and UX expertise, right? Um, if you look at the old generation, you give them something purely mechanical, they will do things that you will never even knew were possible with those things, right? It's just that the UX and the the mechanisms, the way that we manipulate what we what we see and do in the world has just changed. That's all. It's just the UX, what UX means, what experience means has just changed over time. And for now, like right now in our current era, it's about convenience, about seamlessness. It's about, you know, getting that stuff done. But if you don't have that background, it becomes very difficult. All right. Well, that was probably the longest lightning round we've ever done, but but that was fun. Um, I'm glad we extended that. There's some some fun stories in there. Um, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today on the podcast, for um, being included in the user-tested book. Um, we're thrilled to have you join and um, love partnering with you and, and your team at WISE. Perfect. No, thank you so much for the invite. I'm really honored. This is my first ever podcast, so this will be a really interesting experience. It's been very pleasant. Not that I expected it to be stressful, thank goodness, but it's just, you know, it's it's nice. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing my story as well. Really excited for that book to come out so I can read the rest of the chapter, see what other people's stories are like. Awesome. Thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.